Welcome to Test Podagogy. Over the past few years, there's been a huge shift in the amount of research being used, referenced and adapted in schools. But is that research the right research? Cognitive science and educational neuroscience have been the predominant focus of teachers. Have we translated that research properly? And do we have enough research on what makes for age-appropriate teaching? For this episode, I'm joined by Dorothy Bishop, Professor of Developmental Neuropsychology at the University of Oxford, to try and answer some of these questions. Dorothy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's delightful to get a chance to talk to you at last. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while, it's been a while. And I think um, your expertise is so broad that it'd be really good to start by defining our terms. So I think it'd be fair to say that cognitive psychology, cognitive science and educational neuroscience have been the the key drivers, I guess, of the research-informed movement in schools. They're certainly among the most cited of, of of research fields, if you like. But do we have a clear idea of the difference between the three and what each of the three actually actually does? Um, I think that often the terms are probably used interchangeably. But I have one of the things that has perhaps bugged me a bit is that I think that they should be treated differently in the sense that I think cognitive psychology is is a clear field or cognitive science. Um, dealing with um, analysis of things like learning and memory and language and, you know, those basic cognitive functions. Whereas when you move to neuroscience, to my mind, that means you're starting to look at the neural correlates of those things. So you're using methods like brain imaging and so on. Um, And that's a very valid thing to be doing if you're a researcher. But I have much less confidence in the idea that that sort of research is particularly useful for anybody in education. So I've um, run into battles a bit with people who are promoting educational neuroscience. I do find that when I do criticise them and sort of say, well, why, how, in what way is neuroscience really going to be applied to education, people tend to sort of backtrack a bit and give me a lot of examples, which is what I would call uh, cognitive psychology. And they say, well, that's that's educational neuroscience. So there's a sense in which, and I think that's also the other way in which they've gone is to talk now about the science of learning, which is fine with me. I mean, that is that's a reasonable way to talk about the sorts of things that might be important for uh, education, and and that tends to be studies that are in really more psychological, where you're just really studying factors that affect learning and memory, and you know that sort of thing without necessarily needing to get into the brain level. It reminds me a bit of um, when I interviewed Robert Plowman uh, and I said, you know, how does your work relate to an epigeneticist or, or a biologist? And he said, well, I'm I'm looking at the outcome and they're looking at the, the sort of the, the mechanics behind that. So would the neuroscience be the mechanics behind it and the cognitive psychology and cognitive science be, be almost the outcome? Yeah, I mean... You, one of the reasons I got into psychology is because I'm really interested in how the two link together and obviously the sort of behavior that we observe and the learning and the memory and all those things depend on the brain and um, there's no way we would be able to do any of those things without a brain and so there's a huge interest as, among researchers in, in investigating how the brain does these things. I'm just not sure that understanding at that level of description or that level of analysis is going to have much impact on how we work with children. It may be ultimately that it would, but we're still in quite
quite early days anyway. And I do feel it's been a bit oversold, and I worry that teachers may then spend a lot of time thinking they've got to learn all this neuroscience, and at the end of the day they might be asking themselves, well, that's all very well, but i am now got a classroom full of children in front of me. Is it going to actually make any difference? And my prediction would be, in general, it wouldn't. Mm. And that... With the cognitive psychology stuff, obviously, I mean, I as part of my job, I, I look for a lot of papers, and you know, I'm I would say I'm I'm relatively familiar with some of the language, but I still find it incredibly um, nuanced and incredibly complex sometimes trying to translate some of that research into something understandable beyond the context of the study itself. Do you think that? that is an issue or do you think that is a, uh, a sort of a necessary part of being a researcher is that you use the language and and you are incredibly nuanced about about what you're saying um i think you know you have to decide what it is you're trying to do and um that, i think that's part of the problem that quite often what psychologists are trying to do is to get into the nitty-gritty and they will um you know make all sorts of distinctions between i don't know subtypes of memory and things like this um, and have very particular experimental methods that they use to try and tease them apart. Um, but they're not really asking the, you know, the primary question is how, how can we maybe make children remember things better, which mm. might require a rather different sort of methodology. And obviously you want the sort of educational methods to be informed by what we know theoretically, but often there's a huge gulf, and I think what you describe is exactly right. You can come away thinking, well, that's all very interesting, but how is it actually going to influence how I teach? Now, I think there are examples where cognitive theories can make a difference, and probably the most striking one would be in reading, where you know people started analysing what goes on in reading, and, and when they started out, I think most psychologists were thinking, it, you know, if kids have problems or if they're a bit slow to learn, it's a visual problem. And then over time, there was more and more evidence that there is this phonological uh, stage, which is really important of understanding how letters and sounds go together. And that does then have real implications in terms of how you teach children to read. Um, and I think, you know, teachers should learn about that and have a clear idea what is meant by things like phonological awareness. Um, but that's perhaps a rather unusual example, I think, um, as to how something from cognitive psychology can potentially be applied, but it's like a sort of a goal that we would move towards. Where I have concerns, it's where you know people again are not really starting even trying to think about how this might be applied, and they get very fancy theories and then just sort of try take the view that teachers are somehow going to pick them up and run with them. When I think that's not entirely realistic. Do you think that? Uh, I guess it's a two-part question. One that every researcher has an end goal of application in mind rather than just finding out for finding out sake and the second part of that question would be should they have an obligation in research to think of um it in in, in applied terms be it that in an educational I, I, context i certainly don't think most of them want to be applied and i don't think i don't think they should have to be applied i mean we do need what we would call blue skies research just as if I mean, if you draw a parallel with medicine, which perhaps isn't ideal, but, you know, you can think there are people that are trying to understand how the heart works. They might not mm. be immediately trying to devise a, a treatment for heart attacks or something. Or, uh, but when they do understand it, it will inform how we would devise such treatments. But it might be that you need 10, 20 years of research before you can start thinking of applying it. And I think 
that a lot of people working in cognitive areas would probably feel that way, uh, that they're really trying to understand how cognition works, um, but that it might not be immediately applicable. But again, I think my concern is, I, I think that's all okay, and I think that's certainly fine as well with neuroscience for people to do things that you know they're not attempting to apply. But where I get exercised is when I think people you know, just assume that you can somehow pick it up and apply it, or that teachers, if, they, if you tell them about this, will somehow run off and be able to apply it in the classroom when it wasn't really ever sort of devised in a way that would make it easy to do that. Mm. Do you think as well that they are working within a field or they're working in, 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 in a context where uh, the research is automatically contextualised in the sense that there's been some criticisms that teachers are picking and choosing and seeing studies in isolation that actually the writer of that study will see as part of a broader context of, 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 of research. I'm not so sure about that, but I, I, do you have an example that you, you of that? So the memory, um, a lot of the, a lot of the people are, a lot of people are critical of the sort of the memory models because they they leave out motivation or they leave out um, some some of the emotional uh, aspects of, of memory encoding, uh, and they say it's too simplistic and you can't just take a a simple cognitive load theory or a, it's not simple wrong terminology, but you can't take these things in. In, in isolation, you have to see it as part of the whole. I see, yeah. Um, I, I don't know that that is in itself such a big problem. I think that's an empirical question, whether you know you could be effective and devise interventions that would be effective even if you, you know the emotional side of it was, was not highlighted or taken all that seriously. Um, I think I think that's the the problem is that um, very often some of the, you get theories. I, I would say an example of perhaps being oversimplistic is um, where we had the working memory training, uh, which was a big thing and still is I think in some schools, um, where you had a series of tasks that were really quite simple, training people to sort of I think look at pattern you know shapes on screens and where they were and so on. And there was the idea that this would then boost working memory in a very general way. Um, and again, that was empirical. I mean, it could have worked, but I think uh, in practice, it, it, it's not proven to work. It doesn't generalize. You know, what you train somebody on tends to be what they learn, and it doesn't go further than that. I don't think that's because they let out, left out um, you know, other things more comp that made it all more complex. I think it was just that they're using one very simple type of task and sort of assuming that somehow if you boost one bit of memory, it's like a muscle and the whole of memory will improve. And I think that is more of a problem to my mind. And when we're applying this 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 uh, this research, there's been some people, uh, for example, quite a few teachers who I, I converse with who are doing PhDs in some of these areas are saying, and they were formerly teachers, are saying, actually, there needs to be some bridge here. We need we need a sort of a translation service where we say, okay, there's some really good studies here with undergraduates, you know, psychology undergraduates, but we don't actually know what this looks like with an eight-year-old in a class of 30. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think one of the things that, I, so my own area is not so much memory, but more like child, child language development. And I remember being quite shocked when I started out. I was quite naive and I did my PhD and I was looking at children's language comprehension and I was publishing papers. And I mean, I think the stuff I do is probably more potential, got more potential for application and, and isn't too hard to understand. But even so, I had this sort of sense that, oh, well, if I publish it and put it out there, people will use it. 
And I was quite horrified when I sort of came back 10 years later and uh, it was being picked up by other researchers. Mm. And my research was sort of, other people were building on it, but it was like nobody in education would know anything about that. And indeed, I mentioned before things like phonological awareness. I, I was asked well, about 20 years ago, I remember this vividly because I was asked to lecture to some specialist teachers who were specializing in working in children with things like literacy problems. And I started out sort of talking about phonological awareness. It gradually dawned on me that a lot of them didn't know what that was. And I had to backtrack and explain because to me that was so basic and it had been around for 10, 20 years. And then you realize that there hasn't been anybody in there making that bridge. Um, and, you know, that you have to have quite remarkable skills to be able to do that. So from that point of view, having teachers coming in and doing PhDs in these areas I think, you know, is a good thing in that they may have the potential to make the bridge as long as they are, you know, going in, into it with eyes open and realizing that that's really hard to do uh, and that some of the things that they're being taught might not be readily applicable. It's interesting because we've, we've discussed quite a lot in the past uh, developmental language disorder and and why that term came about and and the sort of ways that you and your fellow researchers found a way of making that hit home in a school. And it was quite a, you know, if you read the, the, the core papers and then you look at how it's presented, it is quite different. But what I think you guys did very well is you didn't really simplify it in their terms of a overly simplistic way. You managed to, to retain the nuance while making your point. And I think that must have been quite a hard task. And, and is that as easy with some of the other research? Well, with that, I mean, that was a little bit different, I guess, from trying to do f fundamental research in the sense that we wanted to get a consensus about terminology. And there was already a lot of research out there. And I think the key thing for us was that we did have quite a broad range of people in our little squad of people who were debating to come to the uh, same conclusions with the consensus exercise. In fact, we had a lot of disagreement and debate and so on. Uh, but we did have teachers in there, although they complained there weren't enough of them. I mean, some of them were, were not too happy that we had more speech and language therapists than teachers, but we did at least have some representation <laughs> from a, a, the re whole range of disciplines. And I think that was the reason that that was reasonably successful. It wasn't just sort of like one or two of us coming in and saying, well, this is, you know, how the things are going to be and we're now going to change everything. But we actually had, uh, you know, input at the right time um, from the professional people and the people actually working with kids and from the researchers. And we had quite a lot of debate about how the research ought to be used um, and, and could be applied so that... Um, I think that made it made it a terrific difference, and maybe that's you know more of the sort of model I'm thinking of that you would need with uh, applying cognitive psychology or, or even neuroscience would be that it has to be a two-way thing. It can't be. I think where I did, I sometimes get quite petulant about this, but I think sometimes you get the sense that the neuroscientists come along and think, you know, I'm really smart, I understand all this fancy, fancy neuroscience, and I'm going to tell teachers about it, and it's going to transform their lives. And it has to be a two-way street. You have to have you know, the teachers, on the other hand, saying these are the questions that we are really interested in that we think you might have some input in. And then you've got to really get people talking and working together uh, in, in a two-directional way rather than just having the researchers thinking, oh, well, they know everything and they're going to impose their views on the teachers because the teachers don't know anything. Well, of course, the teachers know a great deal, and in particular they know what it is that they want to be doing with kids, which sometimes is, is not really central to what the researchers are doing.
And to give our listeners a sort of insight into the restrictions academics work under, I mean, when you apply for funding, is that funding determined? Is is that funding sort of um, based on your impact in the school, or is it based on how many times your paper is cited? I mean, is there an incentive for academics to go and do that translation work? Uh, in the past, there wasn't at all. Um, it's beginning to change. So in the past, it was very much uh, really just, you know, did, did this grab the interest of other researchers? And you can get little areas of research which get very positively incestuous where, you know, everybody, there's just a small group of people all working on one very uh, rather minute problem. I think that's beginning to change. And a lot of people were moaning about this quite a lot because nowadays when you are getting evaluated, people are also asking about what they will call impact, by which they mean impact beyond researchers and academia but you know how far is your research making an impact it doesn't have to be of course in education it can be in all sorts of different ways Uh, but I think that has encouraged people to um, think more about possible applications and in some funding agencies they actually also want you to nominate reviewers who are not themselves researchers but are the sorts of people who they call them benefit potential beneficiaries and so that's got people thinking more along those lines um but i have to say i mean i used to get quite cynical about it because i would find that when i was reviewing grants on things like you know people wanting to do research on language disorders they would almost always say at the end, well, if we understand this better, then we'll be able to devise better interventions. But they never got to the point of devising the better interventions. It was always a promise at the end of the grant. And I think if people were forced to say, okay, that has to be the final, you know, in your last year, you have to actually try and work with teachers or therapists and devise an intervention, it it would have perhaps yielded more in the way of this sort of crossover and, and actually getting stuff translated. I think um, it'd be interesting now to move on to the area of age appropriateness because with the government um, shift, if you like, and, and I think this is actually an international shift to to EYFS and, and the notion of intervening earlier creates better returns later. I think Heckman and people in the States, the economists have looked at this as well. I think there's been an increasing uh, debate around what is age appropriate, what is developmentally appropriate. Uh, is that a useful interjection into that argument? Very much so, actually. And it, I mean, that's something that I have been concerned about for some years um, because I think it's it's oversimplistic to sort of say earlier is always better. Um, mm. And there's two reasons for that. Um, now, one is if you're working, for example, as I do with children with language problems, um, the earlier you go, the more likely you are to pick up kids who may just catch up on their own they're just late starters so we see a lot of two-year-olds who are not using a great many words and parents get quite concerned if everybody else's child is chattering away and their child has only got about sort of 20 words but we know from studies that do follow up that even without any intervention at all a lot of those children will catch up so if you go in very early you're going to be intervening with children who may very well be fine and what we really need is a way of course to distinguish those who are going to have longer term problems from those who who aren't and it's surprisingly hard to do that at the moment we've really tried and can't find obvious ways of doing that so that's one problem and of course the difficulty then is that when those kids do improve you if you have intervened you'll think it's something you've done that has made them better when in fact they were going to get better anyway so that's that's one problem that's a non-obvious one that i think 
can be make people get misled as to the, how beneficial early intervention is. It's just that you're going to be working with a lot of kids who are going to be fine anyway. But the other one is this age appropriateness business. So I was outraged, actually, because I'm an old school. I mean, I didn't start school when I was a child until I was five. Mm -hmm. And I remember vividly that I wanted to learn to read. And my mother said, oh, no, you know, you shouldn't learn it before you go to school because, um, you know, if I try and teach you, it might mess you up in some way. She was brought up to believe that you should wait until the child went to school. Um, And now we have four-year-olds coming home from school with spelling tests. And I I sort of found this astounding, to be honest, because I have done a lot with four-year-olds when I was developing language assessments. And I would say that, uh, you know, the thing about four-year-olds is, A, during that fourth year, they can change radically in what they're capable of doing, um, because that's a massive period of development. There's there's more change between a sort of young four-year-old and an old four-year-old than there is between sort of a five-year-old and a six-year-old. It's just sort of massive. Um, but also an awful lot of them are, are, are really their language skills are not ready for, for reading and writing. And there's a real concern that you could just be turning them off and making them feel that they can't do it uh, by pushing them this on them far too early. So I think there some understanding of developmental psychology and how you know one skill builds on another. And if you haven't got the prerequisites in place, you are really um, just going to risk turning that child off something like reading. Um, whereas if you check that, you know, that they do understand how sounds and letters and things go together before you start giving them spelling tests, uh, that makes a lot more sense. But I think there's a strong case to be made for saying that early intervention is not an unmitigated good. It, it sort of sounds like common sense, but you really need to look very carefully Uh, who you're intervening with and make sure that you're not either just wasting resources by intervening with kids that don't need it or if you're talking about more universal things like teaching children to read that you're not turning some children off for life if they're not ready for it that that big shift between four and five i mean is is that just just an just an accepted biological fact that between those ages children do progress very quickly or is 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 there other stuff going on as well well, there's, there is uh, sort of basically the way the development goes. I mean, like the biggest change, of course, is between naught and one, and then between one and two. So it's like a sort of curve that's going up and up and up, and it's gradually sort of uh, moving, slowing down the older you get. Um, and so in the earliest years, you know, the difference between a two and a three year old is much bif- greater than the difference between a four and five year old. So it's this, just this um, gradual. Um, slowing down so that by the time you get to sort of the difference between a, I don't know, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old and 14-year-old and 15-year-old, there's barely anything that's that noticeable. It's not nearly as, as great. But mm. yes, I mean, the brain biology is changing at that time and that's one way in which perhaps some sort of neuroscience education would be beneficial because, um, you know, what is happening is, interestingly enough, is not just that connections are being formed in the brain, but that also quite a lot of connections are, are being dropped. So you start with a brain that's, if you like, sort of over-connected, and it's like a bit like a, tr- a tree or a hedge or something. It then sort of gets pruned because connections that aren't very functional uh, wither away, and, you, and you're almost sort of, it's like topiary, you're sculpting your hedge um, and turning it into something that's more functional. And, and children really do need to uh, have a brain that's ready to learn new things, and their experiences will affect how their brain does develop 
So you really need to have some sense of uh, the fact that a four-year-old brain is very different from, say, a six-year-old brain if you're going to think about teaching kids. It's interesting because, I mean, two of mine have now gone through reception where one of mine's gone through halfway through and I've sort of attributed that that rapid uh, growth in in, in maturing in all sorts of ways in that first term, second term of reception to, to solely a school impact. But it's obviously very plausible that, that that school might have a role, obviously, but there's there's other stuff going on as well that is creating that maturation. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that what there's no doubt that what happens to children and what they're being taught at those ages is important. But I think that there's a concern. I mean, I got very concerned and actually blogged about this, that something like the early years foundation stage assessment seemed to just sort of apply to four-year-olds in general, when in fact their own data was showing that the kids who were coming up as not meeting expected targets or whatever uh, were much more common in the young. If if you happened to have a sort of birthday that meant that you were a young four-year-old in that class, you were going to do far worse than a child who was six months older. And that's just, I think, pure biology, that they're just not that advanced because you know, their brains are not as developed. Mm. And do you, does this translate then to the, the starting school argument where you know, it's come up again, I think, because of the um, baseline assessment that certain countries don't start till six and seven and it's deemed more developmentally appropriate to start at those age groups. Is that a different argument to the one that you're sort of expressing here? No, I don't, I don't think it is that different. I mean, again, just as a researcher, I would love us to actually, you know, um, do some experiments on this. I mean, I, I think they would, it would be very hard to do them because people would probably get terribly worried about it um, and that you might be harming children or something. But it would be fascinating to just sort of randomly allocate schools or whatever to um, either start children at four or at five. And it's not just whether they start school. I think it's what you're doing with them in school is, is the issue because I think what has happened is that in our quest to sort of meet targets and get children to pass tests, we are making the education experience of four-year-olds considerably more like school than it used to be. I mean, it used to, again, I go back to my early days when I used to visit nurseries to sort of recruit children for my studies. And there was certainly not much emphasis. A lot of them, I think, weren't doing anything. They might be doing a bit of pre-reading stuff, but they weren't sort of getting children reading and writing at four. That was uh, regarded as, as, you know, not a sensible thing to do. And I think in general, I mean, the trouble is you'll have the odd child who can cope with it well and will enjoy it and like it and take off like a rocket. But there's a lot of children that you you potentially turn off reading and writing because it's it's not they're not ready for it and they should be doing other sorts of activities, including a fair bit of sort of relatively unstructured activities at that age. So perhaps what we're talking about isn't a uh, isn't a non-start of education till seven, but perhaps a non-start of formal education till seven. So like a, a play-based case stage one, perhaps. Yeah, that, that's that's in some countries that's very much. I think. Um, there's, I mean, I know that in countries like Austria, you know, I think they don't start them on things like reading until they're about six, but they might be in school before then doing all sorts of uh, language work and, and sort of more work on, um, when I say work, I mean, I think it, it tends to be uh, things that are designed in a way that make them attractive to children, but it's not sort of sitting down and learning stuff in the way that perhaps is now happening in some of our nurseries. Mm-hmm. And how does this translate to, to send I mean how much of the children who end up with a diagnosis 
are ending up with a diagnosis of, of some form of send because they are behind developmentally but that might not that might just only be in relation to the to, to the mean if you like um it's probably not the best articulated question i've ever done i, mean, I think what perhaps you're i mean there is a there is a big question so i again i work on developmental language disorders and that's sometimes i also work on conditions like autism and, and dyslexia and um i think there what's very interesting is that and we this came across very strongly when we were doing our um big exercise on the terminology is that there's a big um, split between different ways of conceptualising this. And, and I think what you're getting at is, is that a lot of people take the view that things like attention deficit disorder or language disorder or dyslexia are not uh, actually any different. They're just a sort of extreme end of normal variation. They're not like medical mm. conditions. Um, and... Um, on the other hand, we know there are medical conditions like, I mean, if a child has Down syndrome, there's a clear genetic basis to that and we can see differences in the brain and so on. Um, and so people tend to sort of, in some cases, generalize and think, well, dyslexia or ADHD is just like another thing. It's just we haven't found the cause yet. Um, I think in what we've found in the research we've done is that actually if there isn't a known biological cause, most of the things that we give these sort of rather medical-sounding labels to are part of normal variation. They're not very clear-cut circumscribed conditions, um, and you, you know, there's no diagnostic test, there's no sharp dividing line between having a problem and normality. Um, and this is, of course, a, quite a good reason for saying we shouldn't use labels like dyslexia because they imply that you've got a very clear-cut medical condition. And I don't think there's much evidence of that being the case. It's more that the child, you get these problems with things like learning to read when you've got a combination of a lot of risk factors, each of which sort of add together. But having said that, um, I am rather hesitant about saying we should ditch the labels because of the social consequences of the labels. Um, that is to say that I have found certainly that if you just say a child has got language difficulties, nobody takes that seriously um, and they sort of are very unlikely to get any extra help. It's just an unfortunate fact of life that <clears throat> if you give something a sort of medical sounding label, people start to take it really seriously. I think as well that if you, when you talk to parents, they certainly say that as well, don't they? The parents tend to say, if I don't get this label, where's my, where, I don't have the support. You know, the school won't put that intervention in place. On top of that, there's this interesting thing that I discovered when I was sort of going into this is that there are people who are adults, for example, with a diagnosis of dyslexia who take it very seriously as part of their personal identity. And they say, well, it allows me to, you know, meet other people, talk to other people with this. It gives me, and it gives them a sort of more positive view of, of the condition. So it's a really difficult one, log you know, logically and emotionally. And there's several levels of this. And I think, I know that um, as a researcher, I would say, I think we've looked quite hard for sort of clear diagnostic aspects of dyslexia that would allow us to sort of, give you a test and say you're dyslexic and this is also true by the way for you know neuro neuro sorts of tests you can put these children in brain scanners and at the group level there may be some differences but the studies are very inconsistent and the bigger the studies get the more inconsistent they get so there's no sort of clear biological defining marker but 
in saying that, you have to be very careful that you don't end up giving the impression you're saying the kid doesn't have a problem and nobody needs to do anything about it. Um, I think that's that's the real difficulty, that the, the label, on the one hand, could be a sort of scientific term defining a condition with a very clear basis, but it actually, in practice, works as a term that has this social function of getting you help and getting you identified as somebody for whom it's reasonable to argue you know, the child needs some additional support. And the real problem is if you start taking the labels away, you end up with people taking the support away. So I am sort of, you know, balanced between these two aspects of it. And I think you have to be very careful not to just sort of rampage in and say, let's get rid of all these medical sounding labels. Um, because I think what you could end up with people saying, that's great, it's all just caused by middle class parents being worried about their children not doing so well and they don't need any special help and let's get rid of all the special help which would be a catastrophe. Well, exactly. And I think it's interesting that the research on dyslexia and the sort of research in the depth that you've just described is perhaps not as well publicised as some of the cognitive psychology stuff around memory or some of the the, the neuro research around, as you've said before, um, uh, working, uh, well, working memory training and things like that. I mean, is the dyslexia research, is it because it's emotional that it doesn't cut through as much, do you think? Or, I mean, why why one why one bit of research and not the other? Does some just cut through? You say that because I, I would have thought there was some cut through from dyslexia. But I think one of the things about that I found, again, you know, talking with teachers about language disorders and dyslexia is it may be that in part, I mean, there are, there are a lot of the people in education who just reject any kind of medical labeling at all. Yeah. And as I say, I mean, they, they, they've got some valid arguments in there and they're worried about stigmatizing children and they're worried about making children sound as if they've got some sort of medical condition. Um, and so that may be one reason why dyslexia research may not have such broad take up. But in other places in schools, I think it, 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 I have seen places where it's, it's you know taken very seriously and where people are much more aware of uh, the research literature. But the research literature, there's a big literature on, you know, how best to teach these children and identifying that they typically do have major problems with this stage of phonological awareness. But people tend to believe that on top of that, you know, there is a very distinctive genetic basis and there's a very distinct neurobiological basis. And although there are differences at the group level, there is nothing really clear cut. And I think that isn't so well understood that it, it's the extent to which it's all it is very much one thing shading into another rather than a very, you know, sharp divide. Mm. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, research successes and failures. If, if we look at the failures first, do you think that the persistence of something like learning styles or working memory training is a failure of the research or, or a failure of the reading of the research, if you like? <laughs> Well, there are these there are these zombie so-called zombie theories that never die, and it's quite interesting to try and work out what it is about them that is so attractive. And learning styles, I would say, is exactly one of those. I mean, it's been debunked and been debunked and been debunked. On the other hand, I mean, it is still being taught uh, in teacher training courses, I believe. So, it, you know, that that may be one reason why it doesn't die. But you have to think why it's popular. And I think one reason it's popular is that. Teachers realize that children differ one from the other, and 
they don't, um, you know, the, the, the learning styles idea gives you some sort of rather scientific sounding reason for explaining why this child learns this thing better and this child learns that thing better. So I think it, it's in tune perhaps with people's intuitions. And, and if the alternative seems to be to just say, well, all children are the same, that clearly is not the case. And it's probably, you know, that we just don't have other theories out there that really adequately account for individual differences in the ways that children learn. And so it sort of fills a gap. And I think that might be why it's survived so long. The working memory training thing, I think, is rather different because that came in relatively late at a time when it was people getting very excited about working memory because it's clear that on measures of working memory, a lot of children who don't do so well at school have big problems. And then there was the idea, well, you know, if you can show the problem on this test, the way to fix it is to train children on this sort of thing, and then maybe we can fix their working memory. And I think that, again, that's, that wasn't a stupid idea, but it turned out just not to work. But it took a long time to really... I mean, not everybody would even now still accept that, that it doesn't work, and it got com mixed up with commercial interests of people sort of marketing the the programs. And again, I mean, I think people just really want there to be something that you can do with kids that will, will help. And, and so you get these things persisting largely because I think they're in tune with what people would like to be true. And it's always much harder to reject something if it's in line with your preconceptions of what would be a good thing. Mm. And then the biggest success, I'm guessing, would be the research into reading and how much crossover that has done, or am I, or am I putting it on a pedestal that it doesn't it doesn't deserve? No, I think I think that the reading research has had impact. I mean, I think there's still, of course, huge arguments about it, and people disagree strongly. And, and they people, I mean, it's got rather silly because you get people misrepresenting one another's positions. And um, you know, I mean, I know a friend of mine who said, "Well, you know, isn't it ridiculous all this stuff about teachers are now having to teach children nonsense words?" And I said, "You know, they're not. <laughs> that's not what the phonics check is all about. But that's how it's perceived by some people, which clearly is an idiotic thing." Uh, to do. So um, I think, you know, it, it's still a source of some contention. And that, again, may be um, to do with people not interacting enough, um, the, the, the researchers and the teachers who are teaching. And so they're, they're sort of, you get these misunderstandings that persist. And also, you know, to some extent, um, you get people pushing particular educational interventions for all sorts of reasons when I think quite often, even when they're effective, they may be overhyped. I mean, you know, these are not miracle cures. They're things like, you know, packages of teaching that involve some sort of uh, phonics training. Um, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the only thing you teach, and it's some children still struggle to learn that stuff. So I think it's, it's sort of realizing that all these things are quite hard to get right and getting the teachers and the researchers to talk together and be realistic about just what can be achieved with different approaches is what's needed. But at, at the moment, the researchers are very much encouraged, I guess, to sort of hype their findings as much as they can, and the teachers will be resistant to changing things unless there's good evidence that it's effective. And uh, you need to somehow get the two of them together and settle on a middle position. And we can be hopeful that that will happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, I would hope so, yes. Well, thank you very much, Dorothy. That's been an excellent interview. Okay, well, it's been very nice to talk to you, and I hope that it's of some interest. <laughs>